Let's see, review. So a little shorter review than last week. Uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians this second time, maybe a third time, depending on uh, what's extant. But uh, he writes to them again, and he's very happy because he's received a report from Corinth that everybody's happy with him now. They're not upset with him anymore. So he writes, blah, blah, blah. And then at the beginning of chapter 10, apparently something happens. He receives a bad report from somebody that the Corinthians are angry with him again, that some people from outside the church have come in claiming to know more about the gospel, more about God, more about theology than Paul does, throwing Paul under the bus, and now the Corinthians are listening to them. So at the beginning of chapter 10, Paul begins... Uh, to address the accusations that these outsiders have against him, and he's defending himself. And we get into chapter 11, which is where we left off last time. So 2 Corinthians 11 uh, is where we left off. Uh, He says, here you go. I'm going to have to speak in a foolish way to you in order that you might understand, because I've tried everything else. Now I'm going to speak foolishly the way the world speaks to you, so that maybe you can finally figure this out. So uh, let me read those first six verses of chapter 11 again. We covered the first three last week. We're going to cover the other three tonight and more of chapter 11. So Paul writes and says, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me. Please, let me be fool. Let me act a fool now for a while. For I feel a divine jealousy for you. We talked about what a divine jealousy is last week. Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. I'm the one who planted the church here. I'm the one that got you going in the gospel. I'm the one that got you married to Jesus. You're the bride. You're the church. He's the groom. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So he's referencing the fact that Satan's um, standard operating procedure, his MO, is never to come at you with a full frontal attack because we'd recognize that and we'd turn around and run, but rather he sidles up next to you as a friend, as a wise counselor, as somebody just asking innocent questions, just like he did with Eve uh, in in the garden. So verse 4 through 6 now, this is where we'll start unpacking tonight. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you received a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accepted a different gospel from the one you accepted, three items there, you put up with it readily enough. You're willing to go along with this goofy stuff. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the, le- the least in the least inferior to these super apostles. Okay, that is sarcasm. That is snark right there and we'll talk a little bit about that okay even if i am unskilled in speaking i am not so in knowledge indeed in every way we have made it plain to you in all things so verse four here's another problem with these interlopers these outsiders who have come in and are causing problems actually three problems they're preaching and teaching a false gospel they're teaching about a false jesus and they're embracing a spirit of darkness So false gospel, false Jesus, spirit of darkness. All things that we have to contend with today in the church as well. So what are those three things? False gospel is, we talked a little bit about this last week. A false gospel is uh, usually Jesus plus something else. It's somebody who comes along and says, yeah, 
Jesus is, is fine, um, but you need to understand you have to have something else in order to truly be saved. So it's Jesus plus keeping the Mosaic law. You still have to keep the Mosaic law. It's Jesus plus circumcision. It's Jesus plus uh, whatever it is that, that you, they come up with. Now, most often, people who preach a Jesus plus false gospel do so because they want power and control. It's that plus part that they get to control, which means they get to control you and they have the power over you. That's the whole idea behind it. Uh, so lots of people use religion and God as a mean for means for controlling others. Is that shocking to anybody? Does that shock you? Okay. And the commentators agree that this is exactly what is happening with these interlopers, these outsiders. They are proclaiming a false gospel in order to do precisely what they're accusing Paul of doing. They are using God to feather their own financial authority and power nests. They're doing it to, to try and gain control over these people. They're using Jesus, the wrong Jesus, to line their pockets with self-serving power and status. So that leads us into the false Jesus. This is the person who says, uh, or the teacher who says, you know, Jesus is good. Jesus is amazing. Wow. You know, just a great guy. Nobody better than him. But you need to understand that Jesus by himself is not sufficient. And Jesus certainly isn't God. And it's just really, many of them will go so far as to say, and the resurrection is just pure myth. It's not reality. It's not an actual historical event. Okay? He's a very good teacher, but he's not God. Now, of course, the problem with that is that he taught that he was God. So if he's a good teacher, but he's not God, that doesn't make any sense. Okay? Uh, he's a good teacher and he's a nice guy, but the resurrection is a legend. It's a myth. So I have an example for you. There's a guy named James, James Cone. Has anybody heard of James Cone? Anybody? Okay, so um, he's a professor of theology at Union Theological Seminary in New York. Now, if you know anything about Union Theological Seminary in New York, you already know we're in trouble because <laughs> this is a false seminary, all right? A hundred years ago, it was great, but it's over the years, it's just, it's gone, it's, it's gone very bad. Anyway, I've read several of James Cone's books, okay? So here's what James Cone says and teaches in his books and at this seminary. Jesus was good, but most certainly he was not God. He's not divine. Number one. Number two, how you are saved is by trying to be as good as Jesus. You just have to try. And if you try enough to be as good as Jesus, then you get saved. Okay, that, that kind of racks my brain. It's like, how do you ever know? Okay, where's, where's that thermometer thing where you can figure out how well you're doing? He says that striving is the only thing that matters. Just need to strive. Here's one of my favorites. Jesus was not executed on the cross because he claimed to be God, nor was he executed on the cross because of the wishes of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and uh, the professional religious people. He was executed because he was a political dissident and he was executed by the Romans. It was the Romans' idea to execute Jesus. And at that point, I just look and I go, James, you need to read your Bible. Okay, he's not even reading his Bible at that point. Okay, and here's my favorite, the last one. Here's like the, the cherry on top. He says, the use of violence is always needed if we are to have justice in this world. He advocates for violence in order to get justice in this world. Okay, so if you don't believe me, read his book. Actually, don't read his books. Don't. 
I'll give you my copy so that we're not perpetuating the, the money there. And let me tell you something. Um, he has many people who follow him, and, and they believe they're Christians, and they believe that he is too. A lot of people, tons of people. He, and he's sanctioned and promoted by a historical sen- seminary that, like I said, a, a, a century ago was actually pretty solid, but is not uh, anymore. Jackie's grandfather, who was a German uh, North American Baptist pastor, went to Union Theological Seminary, and his theology was solid. He went there. Not anymore. Okay. Um, there are other forms of the false Jesus, of course, but that's just one example, James Cohn's example. And then the third one, embracing the spirit of darkness. Uh, this one is a little bit more difficult to grasp for this reason. I personally can't say for sure that when a person is deceived by Satan, which would be the spirit of darkness, that when they're deceived by Satan, that they are necessarily deceiving others on purpose. A lot of people who are deceived by Satan have no idea that what they're doing is actually wrong and false teaching. Now, some people do. Some people know they're in league with, with Satan, but there's a ton of them who have no idea. They're, just, they're deceived themselves, but they think they're, they're not deceived, and so they're teaching. And so they, they are sincere, but they're sincerely deceived. The spirit of darkness practitioners always bring activities, works, and ceremonies that, is, that appear very spiritual in nature. And in fact, they are spiritual, but they're darkly spiritual and damaging. And these practices are deceptive. Uh, all spiritual deception, you know, has an element of truth to it. That's why it's so much easier to, to deceive. Um, and that's why it works so often. So Paul again warns the Corinthians that these outsiders, they're false teachers, they're dangerous, and they should not be listened to. But remember... These are not uh, the only nor the biggest problems that these carpetbaggers are uh, perpetrating. The most damaging is still yet to be dealt with, and Paul will deal with it in foolish and yet spectacular fashion later on in this this chapter. So then in verse 5, here it is, he calls them super apostles. And there it is. This is biting sarcasm. What he really means, and his message is certainly interpreted this way based on his skillful use of irony is what he really means is false apostles. And, and they know that when they're reading this. And so Paul here begins and foreshadows his defense of himself and his ministry, which is going to start in earnest at verse 16 and go through the middle of chapter 12. And, and what Paul is eventually going to say is, I'm not just equal to these super apostles, these false apostles, I'm actually better than they are. He will eventually just flat out say that. And so he says in verse 6, he says, you know, I may not be able to dazzle you, but I do have the wisdom of God. Paul says, listen, I've never claimed to be a good speaker. I never claimed to be a clever rhetorician. I never claimed to be a fancy and skilled orator. The only thing that I've ever claimed is that I know Christ and that I preach that he's crucified and risen. That's the gospel. That's all I've got. So if we go back to for instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he says this to the, to the same church a couple years earlier. He says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and power of God, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. 
That's one of the most difficult things to teach young um, uh, people who aspire to go into ministry and to have a preaching ministry is that um, they have to rely on the Spirit to be the one to transform lives. Their, their call is to preach and proclaim the gospel, but they can never argue anybody into the kingdom. It's one of the, one of the most difficult things to help them understand. So Paul says, these outsiders, their claim that I'm trying to dazzle or feather my own nest and that I can't be trusted, he says, it's just bunk. In, in, in terms of Old Testament Greek, he calls it scubala. Anybody know what that word is? <laughs> the Greek word scubala. Uh, it's used in Philippians chapter 3. In fact, I might read this later. But it's used in uh, Philippians chapter 3 when he says, I count all of my uh, earthly and humanly achievements as rubbish as compared to uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That word rubbish uh, translates the word scubala, but that word, that's a, that's a very nice translation of that word. It's, it's the one cuss word that's in the Bible, okay? It literally, it, it literally means crap. Okay, it means a mixture of human excrement and garbage. That's, that's, what it, that's what it means. He says, I count all of that stuff as crap as compare, or excrement compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So anyway, this is kind of a problem today, what Paul was dealing with uh, then. Just because someone can attract a crowd and is entertaining and clever, it doesn't mean that he or she is speaking the truth. John tells us in 1 John that we're to test the spirits. I say that occasionally on Sunday mornings even. That's why you need to have your Bibles open and be following along because you want to make sure that what I'm saying is actually true. I told this to our new, our new semester at GCU. I told that to the students in the class. I said, you're going to have to, this is the College of Theology. This is different than like math, okay, which you're going to test the theories there, obviously, but you should test the spirits in your classes here. Okay, so there are pastors who have huge churches, huge crowds, huge budgets, and yet not all of them, but some of them, when I listen to them, I guess you could say my spiritual spidey sense starts to buzz. You know, there's something not quite right there. And what I found really is that it's mostly something called meism dressed up as spirituality or even Christianity. Okay, it's the pastor who says, for instance, you know, when you're here to worship God, you're really not worshiping God. You're worshiping yourself because that's what pleases God. Oh. Ah, okay. All right. Heretic. All right. Okay, go on YouTube. You can find stuff like that. It's really fun. Sport watching is what Schrader used to call it. You know. Um, so now Paul continues in verses 7 through 11 what he just started, which is the defense of himself, and he introduces yet another false accusation from these false teaching outsiders. So 7 through 11. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you, uh, and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? 
because I do not love you? God knows I love you. God knows I love you. So the new accusation to be defended is that Paul is really doing ministry in order to line his own pockets, to make himself rich. And yet there's irony here because it also appears that the Corinthians, while accusing Paul of doing this for money, we've already dealt with that in chapter 10, now they're accusing him of not loving them because he wouldn't take their money. Can't make anybody happy. All right? So Paul logically but firmly defends himself with, a, with clearly exculpatory evidence. He explains how... All he's doing is serving and trying to live in such a way as to not be a burden. How is that worthy of your criticism? How, how can you possibly criticize me? How can you accuse me of not loving you in the midst of this? Now, I will also say some use this passage to submit the idea that church leaders and pastors should never take a salary. That's not the point here because you notice he is taking a salary. It's just not from the Corinthian church. But some people will try to use that as a way to say that. So the point that Paul is making and that he does have here, actually two of them, number one, a skill that allowed him to earn money away from the church, he has that. So he's getting support from other churches, but also Paul had a kind of a side gig. Anybody know what it is? Remember what it is? Tents. He was, he was a tent maker. So on the side, he would make tents for people and get paid for it. Okay, that's part of what allowed him to do ministry. So he was uh, what you would call in today's parlance bivocational, okay? So he's making money over here in order to be able to serve the church over here. So he did that. And then the other thing he had was that other churches were supporting him. Other churches around Macedonia, around the Mediterranean were paying him. So he's saying, you Corinthians are getting all these benefits of not being burdened, and yet you still criticize me. Talk about gaslighting. See, you get to use new cultural terms in Bible studies now. This is a prime example. So here you go. Here's what the Corinthians and these outsiders are doing. They're both uh, doing projection and gaslighting. So what's the difference between projection and gaslighting? Projection is everything that they are doing, they deny they are doing it, and yet they project it on everybody. They say, no, you're actually the one who's doing it. So they're the ones doing it, but they're saying, no, you're the one who's doing those things. And gaslighting is when uh, everything is everyone else's fault and the ones being attacked are actually the ones at fault. So Paul is being attacked and he deserves to be attacked because he's he's the one at fault. So not only do they get to attack him, but they also get to say, it's your fault that we're attacking you. You deserve it. So we're going to attack you all the more. That's gaslighting or at least one form of gaslighting. Okay. So Paul ends this up, I'll just give you this. I I think I talked about this recently, but I'll mention it again. Uh, Scholars say that when you uh, offend somebody, this is is, uh, like communication and psychology scholars, not biblical scholars. When you offend somebody, okay, there are three things generally that people do when they offend somebody. Uh, One is they deny that they did it. They just deny the offense. I didn't do that, okay? And then the second one is they try mitigation. They go, yeah, I did say that, or I did do that, but, but why, why are you making such a, it's not that big of a deal. You have thin skin. You didn't get hurt that bad. I was only kidding. So the, the first thing they might try to do is deny it. The second thing is mitigation. Okay, I'm just trying to mitigate what it is, make it not as big as it was. And then the third thing is the yeah, but, or it's a form of gaslighting. Yes, I did do that, but you deserved it. Yes, I did do that, but the truth hurts, right? And I'm going to give you some more truth now. 
That's the other thing you do. Now, the thing I love about this in the, in the areas of human communication theory and, and psychology is there is actually a fourth response that you can have, but they never talk about that in, 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 in those realms. It, <laughs> Ira, in those fields. <laughs> so anyway, they never talk about it in those and, and here's and I used to I, I used to write all the time to um, um, the websites of these uh, of these textbooks and say, you know, there's a fourth thing that you can do. You can apologize and ask for forgiveness. <laughs> yeah, you know. What about that? You know? Okay. So anyway. So Paul ends this paragraph by declaring his love for the Corinthians. That while they may not while they may think that on the one hand he did not love them because he didn't take money from them, he assures them that it is a clear sign of his love for them that he did not burden them by accepting or demanding inf- income from them. Um, this, I, you know, I kind of feel this, I, and all of us do this to some extent. It's that person that you know is, is, um, is a little rough, a little difficult, always going to have a problem with you. And so what you do is you come softer and softer and softer and softer thinking that that's going to help and it never really helps. That's what Paul's doing. He's going, these Corinthians, man, they are, they are high maintenance and trouble. So I'm just going to go in there and serve them and not even ask to be paid. And then they complain about that. They're always going to find something to complain about. So, and here's why this perspective is, is important. Uh, many scholars are certain that these interlopers, these outsiders, unlike Paul, were also demanding income from the Corinthians for their teaching and their leadership, claiming that it's a sign of love for the church to pay them and a sign of reciprocal love that they would accept the payment. We're showing our love for you by taking payment from you for our service. Don't you feel loved when you give us money? Okay, that's what the scholars are, are, are saying is probably happening. So let me say this. Sometimes the minutia and frivolousness of ministry issues is astounding. One of the reasons Paul is going to so sternly, he's been stern so far, but he's going to get even harder. He's going to go at them so sternly and foolishly and defend himself is that these things are all distractions from the true work of the church. And let me tell you, that is really frustrating to people who are leading and ministering uh, in churches who are truly called to gospel ministry that they have to deal with stuff like this that is taking away from the true ministry of the church. But it's something that um, goes on a lot, and you have to deal with it. Then verses 12 through 15, last paragraph before he starts his foolish rant. Starting in verse 12, And what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles. They are deceitful workmen. They're disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. You reap what you sow. So now, all potential subtlety has been dropped at this point. Paul drops the gloves, lays it down, and this is the last of the prelude to Paul's foolish self-defense. Look at the names and titles he gives these guys. He says they're false apostles, they're deceitful workmen, they're disguised in righteousness, they are satanic, dressed up as light. 
And also even worse, uh, and that's that satanic dressed up as light, he equates them with Satan and his word. He says they're satanic. That's, I mean, that's as, that's as tough as you can get. Uh, Colin Cruz, who is a uh, New Testament scholar, he, he writes this about the satanic link or the Satan link in here. Uh, and, and, and we should listen to it because it's this, these schemes of Satan that I've been constantly trying to remind the church of lately. He writes this, Satan's attacks on the church are seldom direct. They are more often subversive and usually carried out by those within the church who misguidedly serve Satan's ends. Clearly, Paul is telling the Corinthians that this is what's happening to them. Paul then uses this line to lead into his famous foolish speech. So verses 16 through 21a is the beginning of the fool's speech, which ends in the middle of chapter 12. We're not going to quite get there tonight. We're going to get through chapter 25 tonight, uh, which will get us started on the foolish speech, but will stop right before his, what I call his dangers rant. It's at verse 26 where he says, I'm in dangers from the rivers, dangers from the sea, dangers from my own, dangers from this, dangers from that. I'm saving that for next week. Okay. So uh, six, uh, what is it? 16 through 21a. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would say, but as a fool would say. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear, it, uh, you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on errors, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. So this paragraph, uh, this opening paragraph, I'll sum up simply with two observations, and then we'll get to the meat of his defense starting in the second part of verse 21. Uh, Paul first says, this is not the way I normally present the beauty and truth of the gospel. But unfortunately, you Corinthians seem to only listen to fools and their foolish nonsense. So it seems the only way I can get a hearing from you is if I act like a fool as well. So listen up. I'm going to give you my fool's speech. And then he also says, however, even though I'm going to speak to you uh, like a fool and act like a fool, in order to get you to finally listen to my defense, in order to listen to my side of this stupid and ridiculous argument, I will still do it with the hope for outcome that's way different than these outsiders are hoping for. I'm going to do this foolishness not for personal gain or for the acquisition of power, but in order that you might finally hear the truth and accept the correction you so desperately need. So, verses 21b through 29. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Schrader's line there was uh, not like people in the 60s would get stoned, okay? Uh, so people were throwing rocks at him. So once uh, I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, shipwrecked, 
A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, here you go, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak that I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant. Listen to Philippians chapter 3. Paul gives a similar defense to the church in Philippi five years later when he writes, six years later when he writes to them. In Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 2, he writes, Look out, and by the way, this is quite an insult. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers. And look out for those who would mutilate the flesh. Now, who's Paul talking about there to the Corinthian church? Dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh. Yeah, Ryan? Yeah, yeah. So the Judaizers, the Pharisees, those who would come in and say, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but you must also get circumcised to be a Christian. That's the reference to the mutilators of the flesh. Okay, and he, and they're Jewish, so he calls them dogs. That's the worst insult you could, because dogs are unclean. And he also calls them evildoers, which in general, I guess nobody really wants to be called an evildoer, right? So dog, evildoer, mutilator of the flesh. Those who would tell you you can't know Jesus until you're circumcised. Okay, then he says, for we are the circumcision, the true circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. It's the same argument he's making to the Corinthians. Okay? And here's what he says. See if this doesn't sound familiar to what I just read. He says, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Not the seventh, not the ninth, the eighth day. That's perfect circumcision holiness. Wasn't a mistake in the days. Eighth day for me, okay? Um, I'm of the people of Israel, God's chosen people. But not only that, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, God's favored tribe of the 12 tribes, okay? I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am the Michael Jordan of basketball. Notice I didn't say LeBron James. He's the Michael Jordan of basketball. Okay? I'm, uh, as to the law, I'm a Pharisee. Nobody kept the law like me. I, I'm Gamaliel's prized student. I'm the greatest Pharisee who ever lived, except for my mentor, Gamaliel. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. I hunted down Christians and killed them. As to righteousness and other the law, I'm blameless. It's not that he never sinned, but he always made the exact right sacrifice in the exact right timing in order to atone for his sin. So he's blameless. And then here it is. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as what? Scubala. Rubbish. There it is in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness on my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness that depends on faith. 
By the way, let me just keep going because it's amazing. So I have this righteousness, and then he says this, that I may know him and the power of the resurrection. You read this and you're like, yes, I want to know Jesus. I want to know the power of the resurrection. Yes, I am on board. Yay, Jesus, let's go. What does he say next? And I may share in his sufferings. What? (laughs) I'm going to have to, uh, wait, what? I have to suffer too? That I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What? That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We're called to die to ourselves. We're called to take on that cross of Christ. Anyway, it sounds very similar. So in in the the end of verse 21 in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, if anyone has any reason to boast in this worldly foolish way, I actually have more. Same argument he makes to the Philippians. Okay? You want to throw down on the boasting? He says, get ready to be throttled. I have you beat in every conceivable way. So here goes, verse 22. The whole ethnic nationality, genealogy, born into the correct family thing, I'm there. No one has an advantage over me. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Verse 23. Having established his authority in terms of bloodline and nationality, Paul moves into an even more competitive proclamation of his prowess as a true apostle. And he starts in verse 23 with a more general, broad-based assurance of more work, more persecution, and near death than any of these guys. So, the book of Acts is essentially set up where uh, the first several chapters are pretty much about James and John and Peter doing their thing. And then you move into these areas where it's uh, Peter gets some highlights, and then you move into Paul. Paul's introduced in chapter 9, and then it comes back in chapter 13. It's all Paul from chapter 13 there on. It's all about Paul's uh, missionary journey. It's it's the last 15 years of Paul's life before he goes to prison. Then we don't have anything after that. I've always wished we had uh, Acts chapter 29, which was Paul's life in prison. We can kind of piece that together from his prison letters, but we don't have a narrative about it from the book of Acts. But... As you read chapters 13 through 28 of Acts, what you find out is all of these about is all, are all of these things that Paul is talking about, all of these things that he suffered as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So in verse 23, he starts with this more general, broad-based assurance of all this work and persecution, and then he gets specific. And many of these, like I said, we can point to other places in Scripture, especially the book of Acts. Verse 24, he says, five times I was struck uh, 40 minus one lashes. So 39 times. So why 39 times? Anybody know? Sorry? 40 40 minus one is what he says. He's been... What? Okay, they're worried that at 40 they would die. And the law specifically says you can't strike anybody more than 40 times if they're blaspheming. And Paul's accused of blaspheming by claiming that Jesus is Messiah. So what they would do, because they wanted to keep the law so perfectly, was they would, they would whip you 39 times so that they would, they'd be sure they wouldn't go over the 40 in case they mistakenly counted, you know. 
one, two, three, five, six. Oops, but we're only going to do 39, so we're okay. <laughs> but five times he got whipped like that. Three times he was beaten with rods. Can you imagine, can you imagine even getting whipped two or three times? Okay, so what's five times 39? It's 195? 195 whips. Okay. Then there was also the, the, the rods thing. Okay. So they had him beat, beaten with rods. He was also stoned to death, nearly stoned to death in Lystra. So you can read about that in Acts chapter 14. Uh, he's well received, and then they begin to think that he's not, uh, that he's a problem, and so they chase him out of town, and they throw him down in this ditch, and they're heaving stones on him, and they leave him for dead. They think he's dead. But somehow Paul miraculously recovers. Okay? So that's the stoning incident. And he often had trouble when he would get on a boat in order to go somewhere to preach the gospel or plant a church. So if you, and um, I think next week I'm going to read this, uh, as a matter of fact. I'm going to read um, Acts chapters 27 and 28 about that trip that he makes across the Mediterranean and how bad it is. Do you remember what happened on that trip? So they get shipwrecked. They had to jettison everything from the... Uh, so back then, if you were on the Mediterranean, um, or even the Sea of Galilee, which was much smaller, but if you were on the Mediterranean and you hit a storm, uh, what you would have to do in order to make sure you could stay afloat, and sometimes it didn't work, but in order to stay afloat, you had to lighten the boat. The heavier the boat was, the, more, the bigger the storm was, the more chances you would sink. So it's, it's true in the, in the story of Jonah. Remember, they were looking for somebody to throw overboard <laughs> in Jonah. Well, this is, they got down to that point uh, with Paul on this trip. They're trying to get, get him to Rome so he can have his trial before Caesar. And they thought they could make it a certain distance before the storm started, and they weren't able to. And so it was very harrowing, but they had to jettison all their cargo. But all the people survived. And then when they're on that um, island waiting for the storm season to pass. So they had to stay there like three months before they could go on. But while they were there, uh, what else happened to Paul? Anybody remember? He got bit by a snake. He got bit by a poisonous snake. Okay. So every time I read that, I think about being out in the Phoenix uh, Mountain Preserves walking and the number of times I've... I've I was with Ryan one time at Shelby. We were out there walking, and you were the closest to the snake, weren't you? Yeah, it lunged at him. Yeah, it yeah. Yeah, so I'm thinking, okay, so if Ryan had gotten bit by the snake, and then he's like, eh, shake it off, whatever, let's keep walking. I'd be like, Paul! <laughs> you know, because that's what he did. It bit him on his hand, he shook it off, and everybody's like, well, he's going to die. Okay, and they're kind of mad at him anyway. They thought he was the reason they were shipwrecked. And then he survives the snake attack, and now all of a sudden they're going, oh, he's a god. He's a god. Now they're worshiping. And he's going, you guys are freaking out, man. That's contemporary vernacular for what he said. He said, no, I'm just a man. Don't worship me as, as God. So he's talking about all of these issues in this passage. And then in verse 26, he just goes on his danger rant. And that's where we're going to pick it up next week. He starts talking about all these dangers that, that uh, he was in. Um, I got to tell you, uh, in our contemporary situation and in our, in our world today, in our culture today, um, it's hard to get a hearing for the gospel in our culture. It really is. 
But I'll tell you what, at least not yet, people aren't storming into churches and killing people yet. I mean, other than crazy gunmen, I'm not talking, but I'm talking about people who are saying we're going to, we're going to ethnically cleanse or religiously cleanse Christians. We haven't reached that point, which is good. But who knows what's coming? I know, I know, some of you are like, man, you're really an alarmist, aren't you, Frank? Well, who knows? We'll see. I've told Jackie recently, I said, don't be surprised if I end up in prison. You know, she's like, well, that's a nice thought. That's a nice thought. So then I handed her my, uh, I, I prepared a last wishes document for her, too. Here's where all the life insurance policies are. Here's the songs I want sung at my memorial service. She's like, okay, prison, last wishes. What, why are you in such a morbid mood? Anyway, so I'm just preparing. I'm watching the news, but I also listen to Schrader. Let me, tell you, let me tell you something. When Tom passed away, we got one more minute. When Tom passed away, he had, did, did you happen to go to his funeral? Yeah. Okay. He had that, th- that was all him. Nobody had, nobody got to speak into the order of service, who was going to do what, who was, everything. That was all him. He picked all of that before he died. So I'm just trying to prepare like Schrader, you know. Anyway, let me pray, and we'll see you. Maybe we'll see you Sunday, depending on the uh, the marathon. Yeah, Ryan. When he's saying real quick, when he's saying like, uh, but we're not strong enough to do that, is he kind of like going like, what's he? I'm going to explain that all next week, because that that last bit there is a little bit strange, mm-hmm. and I know it creates some questions, and I have a whole big section on it that the scholars have talked about. So, I'll talk about that next week. Uh, again, if you're uh, east of, the, of 44th Street, um, Sunday morning, either, either leave your house at 5 in the morning, Sunday morning, go and have a long breakfast and come to the 9 o'clock, and then go out to a long lunch after the 9 o'clock, and then maybe you'll be able to get back home. Um, or somehow get on the freeway and go all the way around. You have to go all the way around uh, the 10 to the 51 and then come back this way. The marathon is this Sunday. Now, some of you don't know that, Randy, you remember this, but we used to close the church on that Sunday and just have a service at 3 o'clock in the afternoon because the marathon came right down Camelback. But it doesn't do that anymore, but the East Valley is a mess. So uh, either that or stay in bed and watch us on YouTube. Okay, we'll make sure we have the live stream going. Let me pray. Uh, God, thank you for your word and its truth, and I just pray that we would uh, take these truths and appropriate them to our lives Uh, We thank you for the life of Paul and his willingness to teach uh, gospel truths uh, in the midst of uh, hardship and difficulty. I pray that we would do the same. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.